Praise the Lord. I am Rajat and you are listening to Biblical Demand Podcast where we discuss and answer difficult questions raised against the Bible, God and the Christian faith. In the Gospel according to Apostle John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Demand and today our guest is Rahil Patel. It's a joy to have you. Thank you so much, Neeman. It's a joy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's begin with your story. Tell us about your background. How did you come to know Jesus Christ? So uh, my family are from Gujarat, but um, my great grandfather moved to East Africa, Kenya, in the late eighteen hundreds. And so my dad was born in Kenya. My mom was born in India. But most of uh, my family tradition sort of goes back towards Kenya. And in the sixties, you know. there was a lot of instability in the east african countries tanzania uganda so a lot of the indian families moved to the united kingdom so <clears throat> when we moved to the united kingdom i was about 2 3 months old and uh, families traditionally typically always searched out for areas to live in where there were good schools now these good schools meant that sometimes you live dispersed from other indians and other gujaratis so in the 70s and 80s uh, i'm giving away my age here slightly um indian families on the weekends used to meet at a hindu temple so this is where they would socialize catch up with their culture cuisine language they didn't they didn't want to miss out on that side of life in the midst of sending their schools to uh, their children to good schools so growing up in the united kingdom my family i can say was classical orthodox hindu you know we had a dedicated room in the house for our house shrine um so this meant every morning when you wake up before you drink water or anything you have a bath you pray in your personal prayer kit then you go downstairs into that special dedicated room and pray there for 15 20 minutes and then you have water breakfast and then you go to school similar practice on return from school you go into the house shrine or what we typically traditionally call ghar mandir and we pay our respects to the various images we were worshiping and then we do homework before dinner again at 6 o'clock we'd be with the family would gather in the house shrine you know pray worship and then we would eat then the family may watch tv or whatever read and again before bedtime we all get together and pray so our practice you know when you ask a hindu typically you know you don't say what do you believe you say what is your sadhana so what is your method so my family traditionally going back comes from a a bhakti sampradaya uh, an orthodox bhakti sampradaya vaishnav sampradaya which simply means very dedicated to devotion alongside dharma which is rituals and and the knowledge of uh, scripture gnan which is the knowledge of the soul and the body and the idea and vairagya which is detachment so across all hindu spectrums across all hindu denominations you'll find every single denomination or doctrine have these four fundamental principles dharma gnan vairagya and bhakti 
So ours was more bhakti. So this was my life growing up. You know, I went to a very, I'd say, traditionally Christian school. Um, and on the weekends, it was very Hindu, my life. And when you come home, it was very Hindu. And in our particular denomination, we believed that the guru uh, was the incarnation of God on earth. He was the vessel for God. So we worshipped him. We meditated on him. We prayed to him and believed that through him, we had access to the supreme Godhead that we worshipped. So going forward in my life, when I was 16, I was uh, given the charge of the youth activities in the temple in Northwest London. And the guru had come from India at that time. This is 1988. And I was asked to speak in the congregation on a Hindu scripture. And for whatever reason, I spoke very well. Everyone was happy. The guru was extremely happy. And traditionally, once you give a speech in front of the guru and the congregation, you go and bow at his feet. You take his blessings. So I went uh, to his uh, asana, or the best translation is throne, where he was seated, and uh, bowed to him. And he said, you'll be a very good monk, a very good sadhu. Uh, you, should, you should become a priest. And for me, you know, Dhiman, it was like, oh gosh, God is asking me to become a priest. So I felt elated, I felt excited, I felt, wow, my purpose, destiny, everything will be fulfilled because I, I know what I need to do because God's telling me to do it. So long story short, you know, I became quite radical about being a monk, um, quite fanatical. <laughs> my parents were not so happy because the vows of renunciation in this particular denomination were very strict. Um, celibacy, not only that, but you're not allowed to talk to women. You're not allowed to talk to your parents ever again. You don't get paid any money. You can't touch money. If you touch money accidentally, you have to wash your hands 25 times. So it was a very monastic lifestyle, and yet we were called to live in the world amidst people. But the vows were very monastic. But I left still after the age of 19, you know, I completed my A-levels and I went to India to train in the monastery in Gujarat. It's a beautiful campus, 250 acres. And there, Dhiman, it's straightforward, very intense spiritual practices, lots of study, academia, and uh, lots of community. So. You wake up every morning at 4.30, quarter to five, have a cold water bath, say your prayers. You get together in the main mandir, the main temple of the campus. You worship with everyone. Then you do chores for an hour. You clean the grounds, you clean the toilets, or you help in the kitchen. And then your lectures and sermons start from nine o'clock. And you study different Hindu doctrines. For us, mainly, that particular denomination we were following. And you study world religions as well. So it's a six-year intense um, procedure of academia, spiritual discipline. You know, you fast five, six times a month. 
that's 36 hours without food and water. You know, you clean the temple grounds. It doesn't matter where you're from, how educated you are. You do all the menial tasks. In my first month in 1991, in November, I was upstairs in the mandir and there were 150 of us training at the same time. So we were singing the arti. You may have seen this where they light the dior and they, you know, circumnavigate the images within the inner sanctuary with the dior. So the bells were just ringing away, the drums were beating, and I was prostrating to the images. And then I suddenly, it wasn't audible, but a sense that someone just said something to me. And it was two questions. So this voice said, have you made the right decision? One, are you in the right place? And this, you know, the moment it shook me, I thought, I, I stood for a few seconds and I still remember this to this day that that moment I stood and I looked over the balcony of this temple it was a very tall mandir and for a split second this happened within 10 seconds I'm, I'm telling you this happened within 10 seconds and in these 10 seconds I thought what have I done now I've left my family I've left England I've left my career you know but then like in the Christian world, you have Satan, you know, that stops you in your destiny. In the Hindu world, you have Maya, you know, a delusion or a, a force or, you know, a, a force that prevents you from going into your God-given destiny. So I thought it was Maya and I suppressed it. But then during those training years, what I saw bugged me quite a bit. And that was that we were doing all of these practices externally these rituals, waking up early, worshipping corporately five, five times a day, fasting, reading, chanting. And yet, I didn't see much inner transformation. I saw priests who were priests for 30, 40 years. But as you say in Hindi or Sanskrit, sobhav, the core tendencies of the inner world were very much the same, you know. So the guru came to the training center um, in December of 1991, and I was one of his favorites. So I always had access to his uh, room, and I could speak to him personally, privately, whenever I wanted, which you know, I was grateful for throughout my whole life as a priest. And I said to him that, look, I don't see any change in me, in my inner world. I'm doing all this, you know, living this monastic lifestyle, reading, chanting, meditating, thinking, worshipping. He said, it'll take time. You, you think too much. Stop thinking. <laughs> and uh, you know, for a split second, I thought, what's the difference between not thinking, faith, and brainwashing, you know? But I, I had a lot of affection for him. I believed him to be my God, and I continued. So I finished the five, six years of training. I'll be honest, I had doubts time and again whether it was the right path. But I suppressed them because I believed that they were just from the evil one. I fell sick quite a lot in that time in India. You know, I got malaria five times. Um, brain malaria twice, 
So that took a, an emotional impact on me. So by 96, 97, in, for two years, I, I spent in Mumbai, actually. And there my health got really bad and I met the guru again. And this time I said, look, India just doesn't suit me. Can I just go back home to my parents, you know? And he was quite annoyed and he said, no, 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 no. You know, by now I was in orange robes. I had a shaven head. I was a full-fledged sadhu, renounced, as we say, tyagi, vairagi, left, decided. And in that world, you know, once you've left, everything that's behind is burnt in your mind. It's all burnt. So he was very upset when I said this. And he said, you must, you know, die in these robes. Your destiny is to die in these robes. He said, I'll place you in London, though. You know, and um, we have a beautiful temple in London. You stay there and develop the whole of Europe and Russia. So the organization was very um, elaborately based across North America, Canada, Middle East, Africa, India, but not in Europe, UK, yes. So I felt excited, you know, this is a great opportunity. In 1997, I landed in London. There were 16 priests in London in the temple. And I thought, great, there's something to build here, you know? So like, Many people in many faiths, when you have pain or buried questions, you get busy to avoid asking those tough questions to yourself. So I just got busy. I was on a plane at one stage, literally once a week. I was traveling 60, 90,000 miles a year into Europe. Also America, I was speaking a lot in the U.S., and um, things started to grow. I, I built a few centers, uh, a temple in Portugal, process of one in Paris, in Antwerp, a small temple, and slowly developed about, you know, 15 to 18 centers across the whole of Europe. So things were very successful. The congregation was built up. They started tithing back into London, into their own temples. It was growing really fast. So very successful in a very short period of time took the organization to russia for the first time in its history you know introduced various indian ambassadors to the organization across europe diplomats in the united nations diplomats at the hague in holland so in every front from center developing to congregation building to pr you know everything was successful but you know Diman, as you know, you know, success also gets monotonous, right? You get bored of that too. And then your inner world starts to cry out again with all the questions and the doubts. So I thought, you know, I'm still feeling this vacuum, you know, this emptiness, this hollowness. What is it? And so I thought, let's, let's go into other Hindu scriptures again. You know, we did them in the training center. So I thought, let me read the Gita again, read Vivekanand's works, Sri Arvinda, you know, his transcendental mind, his um, letters, um, and I read other works as well. So amidst all my travels, I started doing another three hours of reading a day to see if I could find something in there that would give me that sense of deep peace 
satisfaction, nourishment that I had imagined in my head. But it just didn't work out, you know, Diman, I, I, everything was successful externally. I had a very senior role. Um, God had given me a talent to speak, so that was working out really well, you know, uh, traveling all over the world. Um, a lot of people trusted me, which I still am grateful for today. Um, but, you know, this deep dissatisfaction just didn't leave me. And my health continued to have issues. Anyway, I had a very small uh, congregation in Italy, in Rome. There was about nine people there. And I went to Rome for the first time and they took me to the Vatican and to the Sistine Chapel. And the in the Sistine Chapel, the Swiss guards gave me a special place to sit um, because it's flooded with you know, men and women, and we couldn't come into close proximity. So he put me in a special section, ironically, under the painting of the Last Judgment by Michelangelo. So the Sistine Chapel, you, you probably know the ceiling is by Michelangelo, and the side paintings are by Botticelli. If you're looking um, from the end of the Last Judgment painting, on your left, you have the stories of Jesus. On the right, you have the stories of uh, John the Baptist. And I remember this vividly. Um, this was, gosh, 20, 20 years ago now, if not more. I looked at the stories of Jesus and I said to myself, this makes sense. It's so simple, you know. And I don't know why I said those words to myself, but I said them. Then we went back upstairs into the main cathedral and I, and the tour guide took us to the La Pieta, which is Michelangelo's sculpture of Mary and Jesus on her lap after he was taken down from the cross. I mean, it's a fascinating piece of architecture, uh, or sculpture rather, of art. Um, it's, it's one piece and he did this when he was only 24. But I found that there was something more attractive beyond the actual statue. You know, I, I, I felt a tug on my heart, you know, something pulling. I found it very attractive. And for a second, I blurted out to my colleague, priest, I'd love a poster of this on the back of my office door. And he looked at me with a very uh, stern and concerned look. Do you know what robes you're wearing here? Um, <laughs> you know, after that, you know, something interesting happened. I continued my work passionately. I continued to please the guru, travel America, Europe, wherever, study hard. But then I just got this fascination to, to the person of Jesus, the cross. So, you know, I, I did 400 trips into Europe and most European cities have churches around the airports. So even when the plane is landing and I'm looking out the window, naturally my eyes would just find the Christian cross, you know. And I just found the cross attractive. I couldn't articulate why, but I just found it very, very attractive. So in the midst of my talking, building these centers, building the congregation, in my time off, I used to go and visit churches across various countries. Nobody asked me questions. I simply 
said, I want to learn from these Christians. What do they do? How do they do their operations? How do they manage their organizations? No one questioned me because I just said, I'm doing it for the sake of learning. But there was something definitely attractive. Anyway, this, you know, along with my lots of traveling to different parts of the world, some beautiful parts of the world, whether it's the tulip gardens in Kukunov or Switzerland, Swiss Alps, you know, or Grand Canyon in, in, in America, I just felt that God must be much bigger and more beautiful than the guru that I'm worshipping or these images in this confined space, you know. He must be much bigger. So in my speeches and talks, I started to speak of a different kind of God without making it very clear, you know. I, I pushed the boundaries a bit in my theology. In 2007, I was speaking at the National Convention in Orlando, in America, and I was asked to give the keynote speech, and um, I was asked to speak on a particular Hindu verse. So I quoted the verse, and then I spoke 10 minutes on whatever I felt, you know, I had experienced up until that town time through my travels, visiting churches, you know, and thinking. And I got a standing ovation, you know. I sat down back in my seat after my talk next to the priest, who's a friend of mine at the time. He said, wow, how did you interpret that verse like that? It's fascinating, you know, I've never heard it like that. And I didn't say anything, but to my mind, I said, if only you knew it had nothing to do with Hinduism, you know. But the problem for me was much deeper, right? People would travel hundreds of miles to hear me speak. They would want my autograph after I've given a talk in a convention, which is fair enough. That's just kind of them. You know, it's, it's their generosity to want my autograph. It's their generosity and their kindness to have a photograph with me. But my inner world was in a dichotomy because I didn't believe the things I was teaching and people rushed to hear me speak. So many a time I started saying before my talk, please don't record this talk. And yet people would still record it, you know. So that, that really hurt people are trusting you, people believe in you. In Norway once I asked my congregation, do you believe every word I say? They said, well, yeah, look, you've, you've, you've sacrificed your life, you're not married, you have the vow of celibacy, you don't touch money, you're not being paid, you do all this sacrificial work, you must be telling the truth. So I thought for a few minutes that's interesting that I can create a persona of holiness, sacrifice, and by that you will believe everything I tell you. So that kind of affected me quite a lot inside, that people were trusting me, believing every word I said when I was struggling. Anyway, fast forward to 2010, my health got really bad. Um, my doctors in London, I, I, you know, I'm very thankful to the organization. They took me to the best doctors in the world. 
they really did, whether it's London's Harley Street or Manhattan or Chicago, Houston, wherever, I, I always got the best treatment. So 2010, I was sent to Jacksonville, Florida, where there's the Mayo Clinic. It's the world's number one clinic. After that, there's nothing much except Jesus, if you know Jesus, that is. So by this time, I had about 500 people in Europe. I had a team of 150, a full-time PA, a core team of five people based out of London. So I said to the core team and the PA, handle all of Europe for me for a while while I go and sort my health out. You know, it was really getting bad. My doctor in London sent the file over to the Mayo Clinic. And in the clinic, I went there. There were five doctors. You know, each of them were chairman of the department. They looked at my thick file and said, you're only 39 years old. And why do you have all these problems? Two of those doctors became very close friends. One of the doctors is still a dear, dear friend of mine today. And Dr. Dorsha, he's in, he lives on the East Coast of North America. Anyway, Dhiman, that was a 10-month uh, stint, if you want to call it that, in the clinic. On the weekends, I used to preach and teach around the North America centers. But it was in these 10 months that, you know, what was brewing uh, over the last 20 years began to articulate in my mind. And um, I came back to London on October 2011, 10 months later. I thought, let me go and see the guru because, you know, even though spiritually, emotionally, I'm just starving, he's still my God and my guru and my father. So I went to Mumbai where he was in December 2011 and things just weren't right. I was getting some strange vibes from the other priests as I entered the temple. One of the priests discreetly told me that there's um, something going on about your theology and about your speeches and people are not so happy. I said, well, the guru's always been on my side. <laughs> All I need is a private audience and you know, that's it. I'll, I'll speak to him and whatever he has to say to me, I'll listen and then I'll say sorry or whatever. But I wasn't allowed a private audience. Um, senior priests came in. Anyway, long story short, in that meeting was very tense. It was very intense. That's where I decided to leave priesthood for good. Um, the guru said, fine, you leave. You know, he wasn't happy with my theology more than anything. And he gave me two conditions, never give a speech again in your life, which was the first one. I said, fine, you know, I'm not really bothered about that because I don't believe a word I'm saying anyway. And the second thing was, don't talk to anyone you know in the whole 20 years and we will not let anyone talk to you. I said, fine, because in the back of my mind, you know, I thought if I ever did leave, it has to be a clean cut, you know, there, there can't be any tentacles attached in there because it's not nice. Once a priest leaves, there's a lot of shame and guilt um, that's, you know, indirectly thrown on him by this sort of community. He's not hated, but, you know, there's a lot of baggage that's thrown his way. So I thought even if I do leave over the years, it has to be a complete cut, you know. So I left on December 27th. They gave me two pairs of trousers, two shirts. I had my British passport. 
my parents had moved to the Middle East by this time. So a friend in London said, why don't you stay at our home, at our, at, in my hotel? I said, sure. He said, look, come here and we'll find out a way to get you a job after 20 years of priesthood. How does that work? You know, I had met prime ministers and presidents and industrialists. You can't write all that on the CV. <laughs> you know, as a priest, it's fine. But in the world, you know, people don't really care. So, you know, I thought at this stage, this is now December, January 2012, I'd get married, get a find a simple, quiet job and live a peaceful life. I was disappointed with my spiritual search, to be honest. You know, I had done a 2000 mile pilgrimage across India, you know, bathed in the Ganga, Yamuna, Saraswati, I climbed Mount Girnar in Gujarat three times to pay homage to Dattatrai. That's gosh, 10,000 steps, <laughs> you know? So much like Ram Janbhumi, Krishna Janmabhumi, all these spiritual places, I didn't find anything, you know? So I always thought I'd have a spiritual dimension to my life, but then I thought that's it. Anyway, two weeks later, I was walking to the station my friend said for four weeks, no, don't think about work, job, just wander around the city of London on your own. So I was walking to the station and suddenly, you know, literally my head turned 90 degrees. There was nothing there, you know, that, that, that I wanted to see, but there was a tiny church down this very quiet road. And I thought, hmm, let's go and see. They might have these beautiful paintings like in Rome, you know. I didn't know that all churches don't look like Rome. <laughs> and so I went down this road and it was around 11.15 a.m. on a Sunday. And there were people at the entrance of the church welcoming people in. I thought, this is strange. And they had these incredible smiles, you know, as if they had eaten a banana sideways. They were like laughing and this love was just oozing off them and I found that quite creepy <laughs> and um, I walked past them and as soon as I entered into the church the presence of God just fell on me so beautifully I felt this tangible blanket of peace and that voice after 20 years came back again it wasn't audible but that sense that someone said you're home that was it you're home and so I went inside and I sat upstairs in the pew and I had never heard, you know, worship on guitars and drums before in my life, but it was beautiful. The sermon made sense. I didn't go down for prayer because I was too shy. I went back to my hotel room and I sat on the corner of my bed. I went to that room just last year again uh, to see the room. So I sat on the bed and I, gave my life to Christ in that instant, which was fascinating for me because nobody debated with me. You know, I was a very good debater. I wouldn't succumb to the loss of an argument that easily as a priest, um, not out of any anarchy or rebellion or arrogance. I just had too many questions when I was a priest. So people often found me challenging. They found me disruptive. They found me, 
you know, unorthodox, unconventional, or whatever you want to call it, someone who keeps rocking the boat. Here, no one challenged me, and I gave my life to Christ. Then I got water baptized in several months later, and then eight months later, I was filled with God's Spirit in a small prayer meeting. It was just the most fascinating moment of my life because I had no job. I didn't know where I was going to live at this time. I had no money, just about had food. And I went to this prayer meeting and I just put my hands out like this. The, the leader of the meeting said, just keep your heart open. And she came and put a hand on my shoulder and the spirit of God came and filled my whole being. My goodness, I had this incredible joy. Now, I've done laughter classes. I know what that is of the world. It wasn't that. It was something so different. And then I realized what people like Vivekananda and Arvinda were searching for. You know, Arvinda went into silence for 17 years. I went to his ashram in Pondicherry. He had really pressed into the world of meditation. When this encounter happened for me, I realized what I got through grace, they were trying through karma. And then I basically said, yeah, Jesus is alive and this is real and I'm going to chase him because this is not just a fancy idea. This is real. This is accessible every day. You know, the peace and joy of Christ is available every day. So that's been my journey for the last, um, well, that was nine years ago now, 10 years ago. Wow, 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 wow. That's so wonderful to hear your story that um, I was just thinking you just keep talking, keep talking. That was so beautiful story and that was a, such a real and nice experience you had. And uh, your quest for truth and your quest for, uh, you know, the loving God has finally 10 years back or nine years back, you met Jesus Christ and you gave your life to him. So while you were talking so much about uh, uh, Hindu scriptures, as uh, you must have in approximately 20 years, you have thoroughly studied this Hindu scriptures, right? And now you've been studying Bible. So what is, what is the key difference you see personally? What is the key difference you see between Christianity and Hinduism? See, first of all, I can't claim to have studied all of the Hindu scriptures. Um, you know, I was taught by the scholars who had studied all the Hindu scriptures. <laughs> so in the monastery, I used to go back even after my training to learn from them. They were known as Kshatdarshan Acharyas. Basically, they had PhD in all the doctrines, all the major doctrines. So even though I'd studied, sort of read the Gita, obviously I would read it in English, but I was taught by them, uh, the Mahabharata, Rama and Gita, Upanishad, you know, the, the essence of these scriptures through these people. And um, obviously then the, the denomination I was following, those scriptures I studied in depth, you know. You know, I think the first and foremost is, I just want to say this so that we, we understand this clearly. There are some beautiful truths about Christ in all faiths and cultures. There are some beautiful dynamics and truths of Christ that are in other cultures and faiths. 
They are not always in the church, but they are from Christ. They're not always in churchianity, which is not always Christ. Yeah. So I'm often cautious to throw everything out, <laughs> right? There are some beautiful truths there. The only way to the Father God is through the person of Jesus. I'm very clear on that. But there are dimensions of God in various cultures and faiths. The key difference, I would say, is in Christ, you are loved as you are. There's nothing you can do that would make God love you more. And there's nothing you've done that would make him love you less. You are loved. He's not going to love you and me more tomorrow. We may experience his love more if we press into the practice of his presence and worship. Right? That's the first thing. In the Hindu worldview, you've got to keep working. The practices, the teachings, when you really unpick it layer after layer, it suggests or rather positions God as a taskmaster, not as a father who loves you, as a taskmaster. Now, these tendencies can also be picked up in the Christian world. When, they, when people live from a place of working to please God, whether you're Christian or not, you're practicing like a Hindu. The Christian walk is learning to rest in him, abide in him, being loved by him. And that's the Christian walk. <laughs> in Hindu work worldview, you've, you work your way to heaven through practices, rituals, fasting, this, that, the other. So it's karma. Here it's all grace. That's the fundamental difference. And in the Hindu worldview, you'll always fall short. You'll always feel guilty about something or condemned about something because you'll always fall short. You'll always make some mistake and we all do, right? We all do even to this day. There's not that cleansing of your conscience and heart by the tangible person of Jesus in that worldview when you fall. So you live with a lot of guilt, shame, performance, and proving. So that's for me, is, is the fundamental difference in terms of the practice and living here on earth. The ultimate difference is through the person of Jesus, you access the Father. You know, and Jesus said to his disciples, I will leave you as orphans no longer, which is very, very profound because orphans, they don't know who their father is. And we have a father. In the Hindu worldview, it's very different. When you really unpick the practices and why people like me chase gurus, is because deep down in every human being is searching for the perfect father. So when they see in a guru some attributes better than their earthly father, they run, they get drawn. It's our nature to seek out a perfect father. And, and that's the difference, you know. Wow. 
that's a beautiful difference you said that the grace versus karma that it's all about yeah. god's doing rather than men's doing reaching out to god and also you said that there is a natural tendency of human that to uh, to keep looking for a perfect father right and which the perfect father you found in christ jesus so in your story you mentioned that you were hoping to find loving god and eventually you encountered uh, the love of god in jesus so what does the bible say about the love of god well god is love first of all right he is love that's the first and foremost thing that comes to mind but then god so loved the world that he gave his only son yeah to be sacrificed on the cross so that's how much he loves us that he gave his pure holy son jesus christ as a living sacrifice for the atonement of our sins so we can be perfectly right with god because of the crucifixion of jesus that's how much he loves us he gave his only son and like i said earlier you know we live by grace every day there is fresh love grace and mercy every day it's new it's not based on what you did yesterday it's new every day you know so that's his love towards us you know our love towards him is to as we read in john 15:5 abide in me and i in you and you will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing so our enjoyment of that love is sort of correlated to how we simply posture our hearts to receive that love and that love is available every day in the midst of calamity in the midst of catastrophe in the midst of crisis his love is always available he never holds back so that's what we see in the bible time and again with the stories of whether it's mary magdalene who had seven demons in her who who lived in a very very you know pleasurely life jesus lifted her out you know whether it's matthew the unwanted tax collector jesus loved him the same jesus loved all the people you know all the people who normal society or the religious people would throw out he loved them because he knew the father loved them as they are so that's the kind of love we're called to i don't love you because of your spirituality i just love you right and that's yeah. the huge difference in the hindu world view you will notice affection acknowledgement love comes from a certain type of status acquired either spiritually economically or whatever mm true so as the bible speaks that god is love and his love is available to all those who seek and those who are looking for his love and there are no condition to his love i mean uh, conditions like uh, as you said and other world views that you need to have a status some position to you know to get to be uh, to be loved but uh, and in christianity we talk about the person of christ who loves us and he loves us so much that he died for us for our transgression for our sins and uh, 
Moving on to this next question that uh, theist, especially the religious, pe religious people believe the life after death, right? That ultimately we would be, we would land either in hell or heaven. And having said that, other religions uh, talk about the doctrine of salvation and they firmly believe that it can be attained, salvation can be attained by doing some particular task or some particular work. But on the other hand, Bible clearly says that salvation is a free gift of God that no man should boast. Also, uh, except Jesus, there is no way to heaven. So I want to ask from the other worldviews as they have been practicing their worldviews. And on the other hand, we have Christianity who claims that there is salvation is possible only through Jesus Christ. So is, uh, is salvation actually possible only through Jesus Christ? The answer to that obviously is yes, right? But we must also be careful because that's a very Christian question, right? For the Christian worldview, salvation is the forgiveness of sins. For the Hindu worldview, it's moksha. Now, forgiveness is a concept, but it's quite peripheral um, in their methodology, in their sadhana, in their practice. And the acknowledgement of sin is there. You know, um, for them, it's not so much the forgiveness of the sin, they fight to overcome the sin, right? Or sobhav, dosh, vasna, these evil tendencies of the heart, um, they try and overcome them through practice so that they can acquire moksha. So I often hear people ask very Christian questions to Hindus and they are they miss the point, really, because, you know, Hindus are not so fussed about the forgiveness of sins as much as Christ believers are. So, yeah, the, you know, forgiveness of sins isn't just an idea in our head. Salvation is only through Christ. But the beauty of that is that sense of peace we have available here on earth, that incredible peace that everything every day is forgiven. And we're washed by the blood of Jesus every day. So it's not a battle of ideas here. It's a reality. You know, I know what my heart is like. You know what your heart is like. Yet I still feel loved every day. Right? Right. That's salvation, right? I still feel loved every day. I don't have to prove it. Right? I feel God's peace whenever I sit with him. You feel God's peace. Our brothers and sisters in Christ enjoy his peace and rest and joy and love when they worship him, you know. So we don't have to work for that. It's not an intellectual idea that we're battling with uh, to compete with other worldviews. We just know here that it's all forgiven. It's not something we chant and repeat, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven of my sins. You know, yeah. it is. It's a reality. So yes is the answer to that. For Hindus, it's the salvation question is not as valid as we think. For them, it's moksha. They want their atma to be relieved of birth and rebirth so that they can sit with Brahman or the Supreme Being yeah. um, in the heaven. Whichever incarnation they worship, um, you know, whether it's Golak or Vaikund or Kailash, depending on the incarnation of uh, the Supreme Being, they they worship hmm. that's interesting that the 
the doctrine of salvation is totally uh, different in Christianity. The salvation is more serious uh, concept yeah. and more serious doctrine, as you said. That and this we, is this is a yeah. challenge for many Christians. They ask too many Christian questions, and they expect a. <laughs> you ask a Christian question, and and you're not going to understand the person. Yeah. You know, I often say, if you want to change the behavior of another person, you have to first see how they see the world. True, true. And and they don't see the world like we do. Hmm, absolutely. Um, we definitely, we differ. Christianity and other worldviews differ on many key uh, issues, on many key foundations. So moving on to this question that, uh, uh, as you said in your story that you were uh, you were actively, you were, you were an active speaker and you went around around the world and talk to industries, celebrities, politicians. So I want to ask you this question that in all the major world religions, including Christianity, does money, power and politics play a vital role? Of course it does. In, in not everywhere, but in all faiths and cultures, in all parts of the world, it plays a role. Now, I just want to be clear, you know, in some cases, you know, the money is helpful. It's used and stewarded healthily, right? The affiliation with certain Christian groups with politics is healthy. The affiliation or the stewardship of authority is healthy, but not all the time. People are people, right? But this is what I often say, Jesus is truth. Jesus is real, he's alive. He's not the system, he's not the establishment. The establishment might, there might be some parts of him in the establishment, but Jesus is Jesus, you know? Um, so in every faith and religion, you know, these elements play a role because we all have, a, you know, a heart that is prone and tempted. In, in various ways, um, but I, not everywhere, you know, not everywhere. Um, that'd be my answer for that, yes. Mm. Absolutely. But that doesn't, see, the thing is, in the Christian walk, Dimon, it's not necessarily about a church building. True. Or an institution, or an organization. I can have healthy friends, community, and enjoy my time with Jesus at home, right? We can't rely on the church or the institution to help us develop our walk, maybe in the initial first two years, but ultimately my development with the Lord is what I do in my home. True. Right? So whether the establishment is good or not good is at some point irrelevant. Because that doesn't affect my walk with Jesus at all. True. Because true. that's harnessed in my home, in my private time, in the secret place, in the quiet place. You know, this we help, we serve the best we can with the challenges there are. But, you know, that shouldn't, you know, affect our walk with God. I don't mm. think it does. Yeah, very well said that uh, money or these things are 
not always taken uh, not always taken uh, you know uh, in a in a bad sense but sometimes it is healthy the these money yeah. and politics is required to you know maintain uh, the i would say decorum of that yeah. community of faith and also also you said that it is ultimately depends on me as a, how am i using such things or i can be tempted as a human i can always be tempted yeah right? i think for for a christian the key thing is to live in healthy community which means healthy accountability mm. and how you steward your walk with god in your home true is your starting point and your ending point everything else that you do for a, an establishment or church or whatever that's in between yeah that is the secondary thing first it starts from you your walk yeah. with the lord your personal yeah. relationship with the god yeah so you know that way you know these issues of power politics money if there are they don't affect our walk because jesus is real he's alive he's tangible and available every day true we have a see we have a personal relationship with him that's the huge difference this is religion the hindu world view is religion it's all about the establishment or the mandir or the priests once that falters there's issues that go all the way to the followers they are highly affected right we have a personal relationship with god regardless of the establishment mm true that that it is that's not look to those uh, the what work is going on behind the scenes but let's start with our own self that how we are making yeah. the relationship with the lord and moving on so i would like uh, so i want to ask you the last question before we end uh, that which i ask every guest that what advice would you give to the young christians uh, especially uh, those who are in this internet age where other world views and philosophies and uh, other thought processes are you know uh, compels them to leave their faith and they 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 get attracted towards such thoughts you know so what advice would you give um i think you know have some form of discipline now i don't mean in that punishment style discipline let me use a better word you know have a focus um where you're not so distracted i think ultimately i'll i'll share i'll say this our intimacy with jesus our time we spend with him alone in communion right the more we do that the more naturally easily we'll be distracted with the things that are not necessary in our lives mm. the deeper you go in god the less you can take with you right so unlike the hindu world view where you force all these things away these distractions don't do this don't do that don't eat this don't do that don't watch this don't do... in the christian walk is easy just fall in love with jesus more and more and these things you will see that they won't distract you what i mean is these different views or philosophies of god will show you what to read when he will give you the wisdom of what is true and what is not true 
right? It's, you won't bounce around off the walls, you know? In some countries in the banking system, when they want to test counterfeit money, they never touch the counterfeit money. They keep feeling the real money. They keep feeling it, they keep looking at it, they keep holding it, and they become so attuned to what real cash is. When they come across a fake banknote, they just know because they spent so much time with the real thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the more time you spend with the Lord, more time you spend in his presence in communion with Christ, you start knowing in your path what is to be read, what is to be acknowledged, what is not to be read, what is not to be acknowledged. Mm. And that's such a simple, stress-free way of living life. Wow. That is really a valuable advice that the time, the most time you spend with the Lord, the less you get attracted towards the worldly things, other worldviews, right? So thank you, Rahil sir, for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here and I really wish your work well. I'll also pray for you and you have a beautiful heart and passion to see your friends, family members and others around you enjoy the love of God. And I really pray that God fulfills that desire in your heart. You're doing great work. Keep it up. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.